Episode 119 of the Michael Anthony Show, and it's great to be back with the listeners. Appreciate you joining in wherever you may be in the world, whatever you might be doing, whether you're driving a car, whether you're lying in bed, staring at the roof, listening to my voice, trying to find the right side of the pillow, whether you're on a morning run, and you're thirsty and you're dehydrated, get a drink, whether you're listening as a couple and you're considering, do it. Screw to the show. Get down to my voice. The sinking sound of despair The smell of dread in the air I'm head to toe in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry ah. Because there is a disconnection between the show and the listeners at the minute. There's a distance. There's a lack of relationship, I find, that's building. That that has been there from the get-go. And that is a, a distance I'm looking to bridge. And it's existed for a variety of reasons. A, due to my own personal problems. B, due to the fact there's been guest episodes to, to take care of, ones that I reluctantly showed up to, ones that I feel that I wasn't really present for. And see, due to the fact that there's been a relocation, the Michael Anthony show was back in Great Britain, back in the United Kingdom, and I must say things have been going pretty remarkably. Upon arrival in Stansted, I was greeted by an intimidating East Londoner who lured me into his taxi by claiming that the trains were broken. No evidence was required as he looked identical to Grant Mitchell, had particularly wide forearms and a discoloured bangle as he forcibly grabbed my suitcase while I was not arguing. And for the next hour, I had to listen to Steve explain to me the positive of the Caribbean influx into London in the 1970s. A, they were hardworking. And B, they gave us their horses. That doesn't mean they went the extra mile. What Steve meant is that biologically, they changed the makeup of how women physically appear in the United Kingdom. Due to the fact that someone from the Caribbean gets with a white woman, the kids mix race, then that mixed race person possibly gets with another white person, another white person down the line. Eventually, we have white women who now have the physical, old-school, white English features, but with the arses of, of, the, of the Caribbean ancestors. Now, as outdated and stereotypical as I found this point, I did also think it was quite fascinating how people when they come to another country can biologically change the makeup of how we appear from a series of shags even if the skin color goes back to normal things like asses things like lips remain therefore making a more attractive white woman and he's probably wrong steve but it was a fascinating claim but this was about the highlight for the big guy as it wasn't really a homage to the caribbean community as opposed to a comparison to the Islamic community and their arrival in London, in which they, according to Steve, are attempting to brainwash us and refuse to give discounts, regardless what industry they operate in. Steve, of course, personally knew Bobby Moore. As before, he was a jower driver. He owned West Ham's most famous bar. In fact, Steve owned four bars, two of which are now Betfred's, and the sale of... All of these bars combined totaled £4 million. 
When asked why he was there for, in fact, driving a Joer, he would ramble about how he was Irish, a Doherty with a C, and he was, he was heavy on the C. He explained to me how they were vital in the movement for Irish independence because Steve is, for some reason, allowed to be an admirer of the IRA whilst continuously spouting English nationalism. When he realised this diversion of going back to Ireland wasn't working in order to mask the fact that he was not, in fact, Richard fucking Branson and owned every boozer in the city, he would go into strange anecdotes about the murders that took place in these boozers in great detail. When I then pushed him on them, he knew nothing about that, mate. You brought it up, Steve. But no. There was never any trouble in his boozer, but he would make sure I knew one thing. Millwall never got the better of the inner city firm. Appreciate you. We eventually arrived at the apartment, which... The driver described as just about all right, referencing the fact that it was around the corner from a mosque, but to make sure that we got Ubers around the place as opposed to walking. No doubt a ploy to get his fellow lying racist and effortlessly charming mates more business. I then paid Steve the £112 he asked for with a straight face, thanked them for the flight to New York, and arrived at the spot. I liked it. Nice place. Has one of those TVs... That looks like it has channels, but when you turn it on, it turns out it has six. But the technology was good enough to stream the United game that night, which was a 3-1 win against Villa, which put me on a good buzz. Not because it was another needless win that gave Solskjaer more time and doomed us to what, what this stage seems like eternal mediocrity, but because Mason Greenwood scored. I like when Mason Greenwood scores because I think he's not only the future of Manchester United, but the future of English football. We're looking at a future Ballon d'Or winner right there. Had some beers and me and my intrusive thoughts joined the London night for our first sleep and I wondered what tonight's nightmare might be. Would it be a continuous replay of Nanny's disgraceful red card against Real Madrid in 2013? Or would it be about the time I told a childhood friend I fancied the summer camp instructor in confidence over a cadet at lunchtime and... He told her. This actually occurred. We went in from break. I was around seven. He was six. And he put up his hand and decided to say, Miss, in front of everyone. Mick fancies you. What? I knew something was happening when he was laughing, looking at me when raising his hand, but I couldn't believe the the ethics of it, really. And the knock-on effects. The guy ruined my fucking life. The guy doomed me to an adolescence that was marred with denying feelings for young women whose confirmation names I knew costing me some high-quality tale and damaging my interpersonal skills along the way. And made sure that as opposed to chasing the women that I loved, I ended up with those mutual agreement young whores that are in every teenage disco globally. And I know, I know it isn't right to call 13-year-old girls whores, but... We should, of course, know that these people no longer exist. They're past tense. They're now in their mid to late 20s. So the 13-year-old them is no longer human. So I can say what I want about those fucking hoys. Because we all know their kind. Dad's either outside at 12.30 sharper. Mom is so overbearing that their insecurity doesn't allow them to have a boyfriend. So they're just looking for a kiss. And as previously mentioned, you don't have the stones to chase the woman that you really want to go after because you're made fucking butchered your ability to express yourself romantically when you were fucking seven. Young enough to have fucking respect for the monkey on the Cocoa Pops box. So you approach 
these innocent, naive young women and you hate each other as you share a 20-second kiss, nearly parting ways going, bitch, faggot, before doing it all again in two weeks. But on this night, none of the nightmares actually had the opportunity to raise their head whatsoever because at 3 a.m. I was woken to the noise of five young Muslim men gathered outside my window. I just took a look out there and said nothing. A, out of respect because this is their town, not mine, and B, due to the hysteria that Steve had managed to build up in the taxi journey. They leave at around 5 a.m., so I'm just listening to them. And after two hours sleep, I'm once again woken at 7 a.m. to the sound of a fucking jackhammer, not just drilling into my bedroom wall, but joining me in my fucking scratcher. The landlord, who, by the way, should be answerable to Joe the fuck Duffy at this stage, said there was going to be minor construction to the building for the first two weeks, but he didn't mention that their fucking breakfast rolls would be on my bedside counter every morning. The gaff is a fucking construction site. I get roped into making the tea every fifth time. All milk, 16 sugars, which they will only drink out of glasses. I'm in their betting syndicate. So far, we've had Lavershell to win the Heineken Cup and Jesse Lingard to travel to the Euros. And all these fuckers do is drill. There's no architectural or construction to any of the fucking process. Just drilling. As if they're looking for gold in Peru. Nobby Solano, by the way. Should get him on. And the process continues every day. And that same crew of young Muslim dudes meet up outside the window every fucking night. And I've realized in recent weeks what they're actually doing is breaking their religious laws. On a very minor level, though, because they come from such strict religious backgrounds that they're, they're meeting up to just blow off some steam that they're not allowed to do in their gaff. So they arrive in this quiet street, and they drink Red Bull, and they flick through photos of fucking Rachel Riley presenting Countdown. Oh, look at that leg, man! And this goes on for three hours. One night, I pulled up the window. I go, boys, I can bring you in here and show you two girls one fucking cup if it means that this meetup will only happen once a week. But it's every night. So it's two hours sleep, maybe three per night. And I'm not a big sleep guy. I don't believe it's as important as the modern world tries to tell us it is. But this is interrupted, broken sleep. The type of sleep that makes you make shocking decisions. There has been positive elements, though. It hasn't all been hell. And recent months have become heavily into the concept of absurdism. And that is a way of life that I don't think is as relatable or livable within your hometown. The place in which you were a child, the place in which you were taught your values of the place in which you were fully controlled, the town in which you did your homework, in which the guards confiscated your beers at 16 and went on to create a complicated JLO process as opposed to just ringing your folks and get you to pick you up from the station, which would do the exact same job. The town in which you had to tell a priest that you hit your sister and as opposed to giving you four Hail Marys and six Our Fathers, he, he asked you where because he's a freak talking to nobody. And it's particularly beneficial if you want to live a life of absurdism, which is something that I believe is particularly relevant in modern society, popularized by Albert Camus, French Nobel Prize winner. Recognizing the fact that life is absurd is essential to survival and any attempt at happiness, I believe. And what I mean by that is that we are born into a pandemic itself, really, if you look at COVID and the fact that we locked down and We've had news channels dominated by the fact that there is a virus spreading 
human to human, which means that unpredictable death is going to occur and is likely. I don't think I could tie the laces of life. Life is a, a condition and a pandemic in which you were born alone out of a vagina, not knowing anything with a blank brain. And you can die at any point due to a variety of reasons, whether accidental, whether illness, whether murdered, whether a car crash, whether anything. It's insane. It, it's, it's unrealistic. And we know that. So in order to protect ourselves from the conflict, that is existence. Um, the fact that it is so pointless to exist whilst having to exist. We've come up with two different solutions traditionally. But there's a third that if you throw yourself into the concept of absurdism is one you'll take and one that will benefit you. The two traditional things we do to cope with the fact that life is pointless and that we're born into a hospice, not a hospital. That's the problem with, with human beings. We like to pretend that we can save each other from everything we can't. The only guarantee is that we're dying. So some people say, right, I'm going to commit suicide. Life has no meaning. Why live on? Because that's irrational. Because that's you choosing to take your physical being out of existence, which is the only factual thing we've ever really been given or know that isn't a social idea. It's the possessor of your brain. So for you to choose to end that, when naturally it intends on living on, for reasons we do not know, you are refusing to recognize the absurd, which goes against absurdism. We like to recognize that it's pointless, but that's not a bad thing. It's actually quite liberating. The second option is faith, formerly religion. You pretend there's a God there. You go and you pray on your knees and you say crazy shit and you have wars over it and you kill each other. But that is suicide because it's a philosophical suicide. It's an intellectual suicide. Everybody is subliminally aware that they're lying. Everybody knows, really, it's made up. It's the ignoring of fact. It's irrational. As irrational as suicide. They both intertwine. Because when religion dies off, we come up with new, new ways to distract ourselves from the fact that life is pointless. Not enjoying our day-to-day -day life is one in pursuit of down-the-line accomplishments, down-the-line future happiness. Pensions. Sitting somewhere you don't want to be. Doing things you don't want to do because when you're 50 and you're 60, it will all pay off. But how, how long does that happiness down the line really last? Goal-orientated society is what we are now. You are encouraged to feel pain because you will get something down the line. Instagram. I was in the gym at 4 o'clock this morning. I did 40 squats. I whipped my arse and I put some fucking tasers on my nipples. But it will feel good because I'll have a six-pack on the beach come summer. The pursuit of down-the-line happiness. One in which we are all chasing something that never really is there because we refuse to recognize that we're here for no reason. So what happens then? Who's chasing this better? It's like who used to know the priest better? Who has more followers on Instagram? Who used to be holier? Who has more holy water? Mrs. Hegarty or Mrs. O'Rourke? Whose kids are better behaved? Whose daughter didn't have a kid out of wedlock? Who made more money on their holy cunting union? It's the same thing now. Whose LinkedIn is better? Who is more impressive at chasing something we have all accepted as the answer 
because we refuse to acknowledge anything else. And then where does that send people? It sends people to the therapist. It sends people to the psychiatrist. With suicidal thoughts. They go back to the place they may as well have just gone because if you're not playing that game, you may as well just fucking kill yourself. There's no one between, is there? That's what we're taught in this society. Play this game and hop on this traditional conveyor belt that will only last 150, 200 years in terms of popularity. People in 400 years will think the shit that people are doing now, the having kids at a certain age, making sure you get a mortgage at a certain age for no other reason than it's just being acceptable to your family and the people in which you grew up around within a local community. That, that would be past tense shit. That would make no sense. <clears throat> so we know there's no long-term gain from it. It's like the fucking old Greek mythology of the guy pushing the ball up the fucking hill and it comes down every time. It's not going to get you anything. The key is to enjoy the process. Imagine him as happy, as Camo says. Enjoy the process of pushing the ball up the hill so when it goes the fuck back down, you're cool with it. And that's why in order to exist, you need to rebel. The beauty of the third option, which isn't suicide, which you can be sent to by failing at faith. Faith is basically abiding by traditional values, which your soul's not really in, but social acceptability forced upon you. That will send you there. So the third option, acceptance. Accept it's meaningless, and we get the greatest gift that any species could ever possibly imagine, ever want. And that is the fact that, okay, this means nothing, deadly. But I have the opportunity, because I exist, to create a story, create my own reality. And that's how I'll use my life experience. And maybe that will get me, even things down the line. But even if it doesn't, I enjoy it every step along the way. Because life is fucking absurd, and I'm going to recognize it. And if I don't, I'm either killing myself physically, or killing myself mentally, intellectually philosophically and we see the refusal to accept the pointlessness of life play out in so many other areas including sport on a micro level athletes no longer recognizing that they're entertainers they're athletes they're brilliant they're very lucky in a life way to be able to have the continuous distraction of kicking a ball at a goal or hitting one over the net for excessive sums. Because if you played your cards right when you're in those industries, you you wouldn't really have for the 10-year period your sporting career lasts. Too many existential questions. Not only is the focus on the rule book of your industry explained so much, I need to hit the ball past that person in order to win my day of work, but you get to stay in shape accidentally and your brain releases continuous dopamine by just showing up. It's beautiful. But now we have them politicizing it. We have one of the great female tennis players in the world, Osaka, pulling out of the French Open, taking it all too seriously, as if there's more to this than the fact that she's just playing fucking sport. Because faith has pulled her in. She has seen other people who are online benefit by changing what is something simplistic, the art of sport, the art of entertainment, something that people were doing in the fucking 800s with fucking rocks and sticks. And she's changed it into... She's changed into something that has been inspired online. And she's now claiming that her mental health isn't allowing her to compete in the French Open. By the way, her worst surface is clay, having won the US and the Australian both twice 
She's never got past the third round on Clay. And she's saying that the media are overly intrusive. The tennis media who are notoriously kind of cool and entertaining and the tennis media who grew the fucking game by associating Martina Narvatilova as the Czech communist turncoat who the American people just resonated to who refused to speak Russian. Or what about their American sweetheart, Chris Everett? Or what about Billie Jean King, who represented everything about fucking feminism you could wish for an athlete to represent? What about John McEnroe and the silky touch off the racket with the explosive personality? What about Bjorn Berg and a stern face under pressure when he just needed that huge point? And every single TV box watching Wimbledon worldwide was hid behind the couch, but he wasn't. Now, he was standing in between the baseline and the service box about to make sure that his opponent's match point wouldn't give them the championship. The media's role in sport isn't to intrude on your life. It's to create characters because you're figures of entertainment. And it's you taking it too seriously because you're refusing to recognize the absurd nature of human life that is leading to you to make claims that the media are overly intruding in your life and affecting your mental health. And it's probably the same reason why Marcus Rashford by the way, who should no longer play for Manchester United, in fact, should never really have graduated out of the academy, but we'll deal with that later, continuously politicises issues after games in which he's played terribly in. Without the media, Osaka wouldn't have made the hundred millions she has made from playing tennis. Without the media, she'd just be slapping a ball over a net to an opponent. The people who went before her didn't seem to take issue. Andre Agassi didn't seem to take issue in playing the character he played in the rejuvenation of the sport in the 90s. Even Rafael Nadal, who has come out recently, who has been sold as the robotic clay merchant who will never go away. He loves it because he knows what it is. What would UFC fighters be making now if the media hadn't made Conor McGregor? If the press conferences that Osaka is complaining about didn't take place and he could ask us all, who the fuck is that guy? about Jeremy the fuck Stevens or whatever he's called. They'd be making 20 grand a fight. What would the Premier League be if Roy Keane wasn't presented as the stern villain who never had a bad game, whose passing was underrated? Because he was a media sensation. I don't think there's anybody listening to this who doesn't remember when Roy Keane left the World Cup and you were either keen in or keen out. And I still think it's, it's a relevant question. If you're dating a woman or a male, I suggest the first time you meet her father, you just bring up the Roy Keane thing and see whose side he's leaning on. Because our Irish victimhood has never, ever been more on show on a wide scale than people who accused Roy Keane of betraying his fucking country. Roy Keane, who just demanded that a team who qualified from a group that had Portugal and the Netherlands in it had decent training facilities. He shows up. He is the captain of, at the, at the time, biggest club in the world who have just been to a European Cup semi-final, having won the treble three years previously, as well as three leagues in a row, 99, 00 and 01. This is the summer of 02. And he arrives and we're basically using those balls using the schoolyard. Those orange two-quid things you get out the front of a fucking Londis. And Mick McCarthy, jealous as fuck that Roy Keane achieved things in a game he could never achieve, goes at him and turns those other fucking Johns like Niall Quinn and Steve Staunton against them. 
And Keane fucks off. Because Keane's attitude is, we're a serious nation. We've punched above our weight in many things. I refuse to accept this. I've brought the fucking tricolour and wrapped it around the European Cup and the Premier League trophy. How many fucking times? But I still have to come over here and act like I'm from the Faroe Islands. You can either follow me or you can fuck off. But I ain't running around these pitches with Kinsella and Holland acting like we're nobodies. If Keane stayed at that World Cup, there would be no Conor McGregor. In fact, there'd be numerous things achieved by Irish people in life, especially in the last two decades, that never would have occurred if it wasn't for Roy Keane. Would Colin Farrell have been as big of an actor in Hollywood? Would Killian Murphy have been? Probably not. Would the script have been a massive band? The previously mentioned McGregor never would have taken over the world of combat sport. Keane changed the standards for our nation. And the minute he tried to take us with him, fuck you, you're a traitor. Let's back John Delaney. How's he doing, by the way? Delaney. How did that turn out? These are the people who were talking to us, who were anti-Roy Keane. But back to the point. Without the media and their ability to capture these conflicts or ability to capture the personality of sports stars, we don't have sport. What would Eric Cantona be without the media? A creative centre forward who took games by the scruff of the neck, but the poetic and enigmatic side of his personality would be unreported. And he wouldn't have resonated with people nearly as much. But I feel like back then people were more in touch. The, the sports stars were more in touch with the fact that it's hilarious that in such a pointless life they have the opportunity to run around and play competitive sport. A thing that people in shocking office jobs choose to do twice a week in five-a-side games. They get to do that and make money from it. The media can say what they fucking want. We're willing to play the role. But these modern-day athletes have gotten so fucked up. So fucked up with self-importance. And the idea that life is a lot more serious than it is. And by the way, if you do hear any of these legends coming out, like if Roy Keane was to say something now, like he, he backs an athlete's right to complain or to, to protect their mental health, or if you do hear any tennis legends come out and back Osaka, they're only doing it so they can continue to work in the industries. Nobody from back in that day believes this. We all know that. The insincere backing of all of these issues is evident, predictable, and sad. John Barnes is one guy who's come out numerous times and explained an opposing viewpoint on the racism in football situation. Not denying that it exists, but that it's always exists, but it it's kind of really powerful to tell them you're ignorant, it's not your fault, you're just an uneducated moron, really. I think Morgan Freeman said it best in an interview around 10 years ago. How do we deal with racism? The interviewer asked him, don't talk about it. What's our goal? What's our ambition here? You're not going to silence the voices, the the idiots who send monkey emojis. A little cartoon on your phone, by the way. To a human being who, by the way, who who isn't a monkey. I mean, it's a it's a schoolyard taunt, really, isn't it? You're a monkey. Like what? It's it's really simplistic and embarrassing. He's 
he's not a monkey. You know, but these, uh, this shit's gone to government. These are dominant media issues now. Multi-millionaire guy who seems to have done a lot for for kids in need. Got called a cartoon monkey by an anonymous user. Do we really think we benefit the world going forward by acknowledging this, giving it the respect of relevance? The world's so fucked now and People are so out of touch with the absurd. Probably viewed as a borderline right wing point, and that's that's the problem. Or we just want the games now to be a series of underperforming athletes who we cannot criticize, who who can protect themselves in ever getting transferred from a club because they can get Barack Obama on a Zoom. I mean, we all know what a commercial, disgusting animal Manchester United is. I've been watching Manchester United since the 97-98 season. And I know for a fact that Marcus Rashford, a guy who has played 27 Europa League games and 24 Champions League games, would definitely be flirting with leaving the club this summer. A guy who has been one of the symbols of the changing standards of Manchester United. A guy who, by the way, has 0.31 goals per game in the Premier League. Anthony Martial is 0.33. Six of Rashford's goals are penalties. Only two of Martial's are. A guy who has 30 assists to Martial's 26. A guy who, according to statisticians, has missed 50 big chances in comparison to Martial's 36. A guy who has a 44% shooting accuracy in comparison to, again, I'm going to say, Tony Martial's 46. A guy who has only produced 14% of his Premier League goals with his left foot. That, for me, shows quite a limited technical footballer. Even somebody as limited as Martial is 20%. We're lost, Manchester United as a football club. We have been politicised before the rest of the game. If you're a Manchester United fan now, there is some kind of negative, and I'm, I, I I think it is like cons- conservative or right wing label attached to you for wanting Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Paul Pogba, who by the way comes off before a penalty shootout in the Europa League final, having played fucking appallingly all season. A guy who's come to Manchester United as our biggest ever signing. I played 25 Europa League games and 19 Champions League games. And Marcus Rashford, to get the fuck out of here. Anybody who was surprised by the Villarreal game is just making it up. You couldn't have been. And this isn't a, a, this isn't a case of I told you so. This is a case now of we are fucked. People who've listened to this show for a long time will know. The warnings... The standards will be changed if we accept them. We have a responsibility as fans to be Ole out. Woodward wants us to get to a point in which we cannot really complain about our manager because we will really love the fact that he's one of us and give cliches about wingers. Spurs are in talks with Conte whilst Michael Carrick is having an opinion 
on Manchester United's tactics next season. Tuchel has just brought the European Cup to Chelsea. He's there next season. Klopp, a league and European Cup winner, who, by the way, with them getting top four, for me, means that they, they might be performing to to a reasonably high level again next season. And City of Guardiola, we all know what he's like. We are now just openly not competing. And this was the fear. Last season, we knew we couldn't win the league with Solskjaer being in charge. The season before that, we knew the same. But now it's... Now it's we kind of don't think we're getting top four. Because we couldn't. Based off how we perform every single game. Oh, we didn't lose away from home all season. There was no fans. There was a lot of luck in all of this. Manchester United are the PR masters. Largest fan base in the country. The spin doctors have spun you. If you're somebody who claims to support Manchester United. Who doesn't aggressively and venomously want Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to leave. Who doesn't really wonder why Marcus Rashford's still playing. What has he done to justify even being a big name? Greenwood's in a different world to the guy. Even when he was the young promising academy guy, and we were really screaming out for a young Mancunian who came from the academy at the time because there hadn't been one in a, in a forward position in a while who really produced consistently. So all Reds under Van Gaal and Mourinho were rooting for Rashford, but he was letting you down. And after a while, after he had the first run under Louis Van Gaal and he got the goal away at City, he got the goal away at West Ham and in the FA Cup quarters. You knew looking at him, this isn't going to work. He's not going to be a long-term Manchester United player. He's quite average. His IQ is poor. His, his timing of a run is shocking. And that never changed. The only thing that changed is that I think he sent a tweet to the government. What's changed? Why is he still here? Why aren't you allowed to say he has to go now? He's shocking. Always was. But that's how clever they are. In order for them to continue to exist in a way that doesn't give a fuck about trophies and only gives a shit about revenue, they had to manipulate the fans, and they've done so. And when Villarreal lifted that 15-kilogram trophy, by the way, an outrageous weight for a trophy, get a new one. It's just stupid. Um, I really don't understand how anybody was shocked. What about us suggested we were going to beat an M-Ray team in a, in a major final? What part of us is as a unit, as a team, gave you that impression. We have very good players. We have excellent individuals. You will, even accidentally, not out of good recruitment, get a number of top-quality players if you're, play, if, you're, if you're paying the wages Manchester United pay. It's just going to happen, eventually. And we have that now. But I don't understand how you're sleeping easy at night as a red, knowing that Conte's actually talking to Spurs when he could be coming to manage Mason Greenwood and Bruno Fernandes. And an inform Luke Shaw. And Cavani next season. And maybe even get rid of Wambasaka. Because I got a lot of a lot of complaints from United fans when I had Danny Simpson on last summer and I told him that I thought he was a better right back than Wambasaka. People really, really aggressively going at me. I don't need to stand by it because I wouldn't have said it at the time if I didn't think it was a fact. I'm not happy Wambasaka proved the point, but Wambasaka has an 18% crossing accuracy in the Premier League. Would you believe me if I told you Tony Hibbert is 23? 
What about the previously mentioned Danny Simpson and his 24? What about a real Manchester United right-back, Gary Neville, and his 31%? Or what about someone who we're linked with today that excites me a lot, Kieran Trippier, 26%? Are we afraid to become a football club again? Are you numbed? Are you comfortable in the game that we're now playing of will Ole prove the doubters wrong? Is that the, is that the distraction now? Are you afraid to compete? Are you afraid of the pain of actually going to Anfield for a game that matters? Or beating City in a game in which they actually give a shit about? Are you afraid of the pain? Are you afraid that if we actually try and compete again, we won't be what we were under Fergie? Fucking hell. Imagine having the great man in a position to hand out the medals in the Europa League final. Runners-up medals at that to the club in which he rebuilt. We owe him a huge apology. People will say Fergie left the club in a bad situation, even if you fucking think that, which he didn't. You got your own back a long time ago. But what you had that God, that human myth doing last week is, is it's it's unforgivable. And the fans who refuse to to adopt an Ole out narrative are part of that. You you really are. You you're really damaging the club. What difference can fans make? You, you you of course you can make a difference when it comes to managers getting sacked. They want you talking about how the clubs ran and the Glazers and all. They're separate issues. I've said this from the fucking get go. I don't know why I'm saying it again. Did you not hear the numbers of Europa League games v Champions League games played? The point is that we're a fucking Europa League side now. That's the fucking point. We're not paying Europa League side wages, though. We're not paying Europa League side fucking transfer fees. So for all the problems we do have with the fucking owners and the Glazers, yeah, recruitment isn't good enough for us to, to win leagues. But Jesus Christ. When are we even going to have our accidental success? Like Chelsea just had. We're not. Because you need a fucking manager. You need a football manager for any of this shit to happen. How did Rodgers win the FA Cup at Leicester? Because he's, kind, he's he's a football manager. Yeah, but Ole got second. Rodgers missed out in top four again. What do you think Rodgers would do with the United squad? What do you think Ole would do with the Leicester squad? Just ask yourself that question. It's not... Any rhetoric you have to back Solskjaer, it, it doesn't, there's no way you can believe it. It must just be an annoyance that you've either committed to something and you can't fucking believe the damage you're causing and you're standing by it because you know he's probably not going to get sacked until he literally takes a shit on the halfway line in Old Trafford. That's what I think Solskjaer at this point has to do to lose his job. Run onto the pitch at home to fucking Brentford next season. Go, hold up, one second. And shite on the halfway line. With the Sir Alex Ferguson stand in the fucking backdrop. It's sick. You're like soldiers of, of the Glazers and Ed Woodward's lack of decision-making skills. You're kind of using it to continue your narrative that Ole needs time and he's the right man for the job. Uh, it's getting to a dangerous point now where I don't really like people who are Ole in personally. 
I know football is football and you should be able to separate people's opinions on the game when it comes to what you make as them as people. And, and if we existed the way I'm saying now, we wouldn't be mates with people who supported Liverpool, etc. To which there is always limitations. But I think if you're all in, it says a lot about your personality, your ability to think. I think if you think Marcus Rashford is a good player, I think it's, it says a lot about you. Like I remember I, I was in a boozer maybe seven months ago with this complete con artist. Uh, proper inability to to form an opinion of reason on any topic. And he found it outrageous that I was telling him that Danny Welbeck at one point had more potential than Marcus Rashford. He thought it was like the use of exaggeration to hammer home a point. It wasn't. In a way, it's an extremely good thing that United didn't beat Villarreal. Because the 2% chance that exists that Ole's gone if we don't pick up more than six points in our first four league games the next season only exists because we didn't win that game. If he if he won the Europa fucking league, imagine what the Oleans would have said. The same people who probably would have been saying, why is Mourinho celebrating when he won it in the same season he won the League Cup before coming second with 81 points, not 74, the next season. They probably didn't like Mourinho because Jose Mourinho chose his own life story, wears his heart in a sleeve, and is aware of the absurd. There was something about him they didn't like. He was too comfortable in his own skin. They couldn't get him, even now when they say he's gone and he's dead. And yeah, of course, he wasn't. He didn't fancy the fight at Tottenham. He'd rather take their money and now go live in Rome for three years and probably do something serious with them, by the way. And I hope he does. I have a huge eye on Roma next season. But Ole, you can probably relate to him. He's a he's a nice guy. He doesn't upset anyone. And his shortcomings refuse to be highlighted while any positive is amplified on every billboard you can find. It's... It's absolutely gutting. It's heartbreaking. And any Manchester United fans listening to this, we could be fucked. We make the wrong decisions in the next four to six months. We're looking at Arsenal kind of territory here. We're 8-1 to to win the league next season, which is only due to the tears and fight that men such as Sir Alex Ferguson and Paul Scholes possessed that they can't really move us higher than that just because the name carries so much weight. We are the famous Manchester United, after all. I think Arsenal might be going off at 66. It could be in the 30s, but I think it's 66. That's where we're headed. If we allow the mediocre and draining reign of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to continue. I know we put the ball in the German's net. Jeez, he's not far off taking it out. And in terms of transfers, even the way we get written about on a transfer level in the media, just such sensationalist bullshit. Do you want Jaden Sancho? Do you want a guy who had injury problems for the first time last season who, who only scored eight league goals having got 17 the year before? I don't like buying players on that on that kind of fucking side of form. I know it was injury related, but 
I'm not really interested in getting Sancho in. I don't see how we need him. I'd be looking more at Manchester United signings in which you see something in a player's personality and abilities that you think will give us the best chance of, of existing again. Ben Godfrey been one. What's wrong with a ball-playing centre-half who has been wonderful at two clubs, who Rio Ferdinand, perhaps our greatest ever centre-half, has said numerous times he wants to go to Manchester United, and who Carlo Ancelotti loved? When you have Harry Maguire, Victor Lindelof, Axel Tunzabe, and Eric Bailly, who, by the way, has Eric Bailly's died like 16 times in the last four years. Why not look at Ben Godfrey? He's not going to the Euros, which means he's not going to get Maguired, and he's not going to come out of the back of a major tournament with a stupid fucking price tag on him. And he'd love to play for the famous Man United. If not, and we saw this guy in, in the Europa League final, Pau Torres, Villarreal. What's wrong with him? And there's another one that some people might find unpopular. I've said it to numerous people over the last few weeks, and I've nearly come to blows with a few of the people. Renato Sanchez. Of course, if you go on loan to Swansea and you completely butcher it, your reputation is going to be horrible. But we're talking about a guy who won a Euro starting in the final, aged 18, who was once touted as the next Edgar Davids and Clarence Seedorf. Having failed at Bayern and Swansea, he's gone to Lille and he's won the league. There's a lot to be said for a 23-year-old midfielder who was once considered on his way to the top table of football, who fails and has a bit of a bounce back, wins a league with a complete underdog in France, and he's still only 23. Get him in. See what he's about for a few years. That sounds slightly Fergie-esque. That sounds slightly Manchester United-esque. So will we do it? No. Give us Jack Grealish. I mean, come on. Why? Why do you want Jack Grealish? He's a good guy. He looks great. He plays well. But can you see the hairband and the socks and the attitude really being what Manchester United need right now? Would the sight of Grealish and Pogba high-fiving over an equaliser at home to West Ham really make it that excited? No. I also wouldn't really even like him to leave Villa. I dig that story. His great-granddad playing in an FA Cup final 100 years ago. That's what football's about. Getting hit by the Birmingham away fan and going on to score the winner in St. Andrews. Leave him there. Football needs it. Football needs it. We all have a lot of problems as individuals, but we, we have the ability and the responsibility to be able to cope with them. And society has given us numerous hiding places. But by leaving the hiding place and taking it on with your fucking fists out, I believe you become a better individual. Some big guests lined up. We're also looking into the concept of having some of the guests who've come on this show returning, as that would be interesting. We've made some great friends across the table and over the microphone over the last 118 episodes. So, yeah, that is something me and my... Me and my coach are looking at. That's the best form of McGregor there is, by the way. And I know I've mentioned him a few times. I'm not a McGregor guy. I used to really dislike him and everything his fans stood for. But now with Logan Paul fighting Mayweather and your man 
fucking Jake actually being combat fighters. Although McGregor caused it, he actually looks like a real true fucking artist in comparison to them. So I've warmed up to him a bit. But what I found is the sensational aggressive shit isn't what gets me. It's when he's a bit jet lagged and he arrives in the hotel and that aggression is out of his voice. And yeah, it's toned down a bit and he will do that. Um, or he will break his orbital bomb. Yes. And he's, and he's relaxed. Uh, rate the show. Review the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aisha. It's been how many years, my oh, boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take Radio it cast. slow. Podcast. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine. What's it? Makes me see the light. What about those tears? Tears, believe my eyes. How's it make you feel? Makes me feel just fine. What's it? Makes me feel just fine.